as the screen says, uh, you're already doing it, but children up to second grade are dismissed to Hope Kids. Well, good morning. My name is Kevin Stuhlman. I'm one of the mission group leaders here at Hope, and it's my privilege to bring the word to you this morning. And I want to talk to you this morning about work. I know everyone's favorite topic. Well, work, whether we like it or not, is part of life. In the very opening chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2, God gave work to Adam and Eve. And so we recognize that work is a gift. It is a way in which we image God, and it is a way further in which we serve God. And we all know work is a significant part of life, whether it is in the home or in a a, a paid workplace. I want you to think about this for a minute. Hopefully you won't get too depressed. But if I did the math right, the average full-time worker will spend in the range of 80,000 to 100,000 hours at work over his or her career. Unfortunately, in Genesis 3, after the fall, work also came under God's curse. Not all its goodness was lost, but God says that work now involves pain and sweat, thorns and thistles. And we might add, work now involves other people in their fallenness. More specifically, it involves bosses, supervisors in their fallenness. And while there are many good bosses, certainly sometimes we get the not-so-good ones. There are, for example, incompetent bosses like Michael Scott from The Office or pointy-haired boss from the Dilbert comic strip. Or there are cruel bosses like Meryl Streep's character Miranda Priestley from The Devil Wears Prada or my personal favorite evil boss, Mr. Burns from The Simpsons. Many of us, sadly, have experienced bad bosses And some of us have experienced what we would even call toxic work environments. Furthermore, some of us may have experienced mistreatment at work because of hostility to our Christian faith. That's certainly the case in many parts of the world. I was looking at the website of Open Doors USA this week, and they tell the story of a Christian woman in Tajikistan. They gave her the pseudonym Sarah, and it reads like this, It all began about a month ago when Sarah took some time off for vacation. While she was away from work, her colleagues began to have spiritual conversations surrounding the Islamic holy month of Ramadan. Someone brought up Sarah's Christian faith, which really didn't sit well with the director of the company. Even though he knew she was on vacation, the director made Sarah come back early just so the two of them could discuss her Christian beliefs. For four whole hours, the director pressured Sarah to leave Christ and return to Islam, even promising promising her a raise and faster promotions if she complied. And when she declined, he threatened to fire her, but said he'd give her some time to reconsider her decision. Since their conversation, Sarah says her workload has increased dramatically, and the director recently gave her an ominous warning that her name is now on some type of list. So, Given the reality of work in a fallen world, in which the Apostle Peter says we are sojourners and exiles, what is our Christian duty in the workplace, even in a less than ideal or hostile workplace? This is not a new problem, and it's the topic of today's passage. And before I read it, I just want to share the main point with you as as I studied. It's this, in the workplace and beyond, 
Christ is our model and our motivation for submission and suffering. In the workplace and beyond, Christ is our model and motivation in submission and suffering. Our passage, continuing in our series in 1 Peter, is found in 1 Peter chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 18 through 25, and I invite you to turn there in your Bibles and follow along if I, as I read, if I can get my Bible open, that is. All right, 1 Peter 2, verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. May God bless the reading of his word to our hearts. Again, main point, give you a little more time to write it down. In the workplace and beyond, Christ is our model and motivation in suffering, and, or excuse me, in submission and suffering. And as we explore this point this morning, we're going to look at three things. Number one, the command. Number two, the rationale. And number three, the application. First, the command. The command is this, obey earthly masters even if they're unjust. Taking this from verse 18, which reads, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Now, before we look more closely at this command, we need to unpack some, some context and some background that will help us in our understanding and application of this passage. First of all, just a reminder of the context this passage is continuing the teaching that was begun in verses 13 through 17, where he was talking about our Christian duty in various social settings. If you remember from last week, the lead command of verse 13 was, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Now, Peter then wrote specifically about our relationship to the government. Well, today's passage begins the exact same way, be subject to your masters, and then chapter 3, verse 1, continues the pattern, instructing wives to be subject to their husbands. Now, given humankind's sinful, rebellious nature, the command to be subject rubs the wrong way in every time and in every culture. But we have to also be aware of our setting, and we are, live in a setting of radical, extreme, hyper-individualism. And this command, be subject to anything, anyone, really really cuts against the grain. In fact, many might find it offensive to be subject to anyone. But it's the biblical command. We find it in many other places in Scripture, not least of which is the command to be subject to Christ as Lord. And sub subjecting to others within social context is an expression of, an outworking of, that more important subjection to God. 
And doing so is, in fact, real freedom, as last week's passage taught. We live as free people, it said, by living as God's servants. Further, this countercultural approach to social interaction is part of our differentness as God's people. The call from chapter 1 to be holy, for He is holy. And speaking of that differentness, this passage also expands and continues on the teaching of verse 12, which talked about keeping our conduct among unbelievers honorable with the hopeful effect, side effect of number one, glory to God, and number two, evangelistic fruit. So that's the, that's the context within the book of First Peter. Next, I think we need to do a little bit of digging into the, the, the cultural background, and we'll start with the passage's genre. Peter is following here the model of a household code. This was a thing, a household code. In Greco-Roman first century, the household was the key building block of Greco-Roman society. A household was headed by a male, consisted also of wives, children, slaves, perhaps extended families, cousins, grandmas, grandpas, etc. But a household was not just a private matter in this culture. Maintaining proper order in the household's web of social relationships was seen as crucial, necessary, the basis for a strong, orderly, and prosperous society. And so, Greek philosophers wrote household codes, which were moral instructions to govern these relationships. Both Peter and Paul, in their letters, adopt this form, or adapt it is more, more accurately, and they did so to teach how to live Christianly within the framework of existing social structures that their audiences were living in. Now, the Christian ground, reason, foundation of the household code is our relationship with God in Christ. Here, in the passage I just read, Peter addresses the master-slave relationship. In the next, he addresses the husband and wife relationship. Peter doesn't do so, but in other places, Paul addresses the parent-child relationship as part of this household code. Well, regarding the master-slave relationship, verse 18 addresses servants. Now, the word used here refers specifically to household servants. Some of them may have been free persons, actual, like, employees. But most likely, more likely, they would have been slaves who were owned by their masters, the, the, the master of the house. And that being said, we need to unpack a little bit the institution of slavery in the first century Greco-Roman world because when we think of slavery, our mind goes to slavery in the early Americas, and the two are different. American slavery was race-based, and it was permanent. For the most part, slaves here lived under horrible, horrible conditions. Education was discouraged. They had no economic life of their own, and the work was hard and menial. Now, being a slave in Greco-Roman society was, no, uh, was not great. They were still considered property. They weren't considered as to be non-persons with very few, if any, legal rights. Masters were free to treat slaves however they wanted, sometimes harshly, sometimes with physical, sometimes with sexual abuse. It was surely better in first century Rome to be free than to be a slave, but there were differences from then and the experience in America. Slavery in the Roman Empire was not race-based. People became slaves by either being captured in war or by being kidnapped or being born into a slave family. Some people, in fact many people, sold themselves into slavery for economic reasons, to get money. 
Many of the slaves in the first century were well-educated and they served in positions like doctors and teachers and managers and, and, and so, so on. Slaves could actually own other slaves and per slaves could also purchase or earn their own freedom and many of them in fact did so. Now, the question on our minds is, was this system of slavery immoral? Well, given a biblical understanding of the dignity and the worth of all humans, I would have, we would have to say yes, it was immoral, even though it's different from what we experienced in early America. However, the New Testament writers do not call to overthrow this socioeconomic system. That's not their concern. However, the gospel, along with its ramifications, subverts the system of slavery, as history has shown. All right, given all that, context, background, etc., we return to the command, er, obey earthly masters, even if they are unjust. Peter tells here servants to submit to their masters, much like he told everyone in the previous passage, to submit to government authorities. This submission includes recognizing authority as authority and obeying it. In other words, servants should do what their masters tell them to do. Further, he says, they should treat their masters with respect, he says, which speaks not only to action, but also to attitude and to demeanor. It goes back to verse 17's honor everyone. As in the case of government, Christian slaves were not to use their freedom in Christ as an excuse for evil from last week's passage. Now, did this command apply only to good masters? No. Submission to government doesn't depend on the character of the government or the emperor. And likewise, Peter says, submission to a master doesn't depend on the character of the master. Not only good and gentle masters, he says, but unjust masters are to, to be obeyed. And this word used unjust has a flavor of, of crookedness, corruption. Other translations use the words harsh or unreasonable. And there were no doubt many such wicked masters within the Roman Empire. So that's the command. Next we turn to the rationale, looking at verses 19 through 25. And the rationale that Peter gives here, as I see it, is fourfold, and we'll look at subpoints A through D, just if you're keeping track here. We'll begin with, with subpoint A of the rationale, enduring unjust suffering pleases God. Verses 19 to 20. For this is a gracious thing when Mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, we, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Using good Bible study methods, we want to notice that a couple of repetitions are very important here. First of all, the English word endure appears three times in these two verses. The first time it refers to enduring sorrow, and the original word used suggests, suggests the idea of carrying a, carrying a burden. So Peter's a realist. He doesn't sugarcoat this situation. He acknowledges that unjust treatment causes pain. It causes sorrow. The second two occurrences of endure carry with them the idea of being patient. So first repetition that we need to pay attention to, the word endure. The second repetition that we need to pay attention to is this phrase, this is a gracious thing, both at the beginning of verse 19 as well at the end of verse 20. 
And he's referring here, this is a gracious thing, to enduring. Well, this is a gracious thing. That's a little perhaps awkward. And I think other translations, again, help us clarify what this means. For example, the NIV says that endurance is commendable. NASB says that it finds favor. That is, it finds favor with God. He says in verse 19, we endure mindful of God. Remember from the previous passage, we're to live as God's servants, fearing him. As always, in this command, as we think about it, as always, the foundational motivation for godly behavior is God himself, who he is, what he's done for us, what he's commanded. Mindfulness of God and our responsibility to him should direct all of our behavior, and specifically in this case, it should direct how we respond to unjust treatment at the hand of a master or employer. Now, Peter gives a contrast here in verse 20, saying essentially, if, if you're a servant and you do bad or you disobey and you get punished for it, you got what you deserved. There's no credit for enduring punishment in that case. Anyone and everyone does that. That's easy. But what finds favor with God, Peter says, is enduring unjust treatment. And the reason this finds favor with God is that doing so is evidence of our new life in and conformity to Christ. Now, the main audience who finds this behavior gracious is God. But I think it can also be seen as gracious by other people too. Again, this is part of our honorable conduct and good deeds of verses 12 and 15 from the previous passage, which again we hope results in God's glory and evangelistic fruit. I just mentioned conformity to Christ. That leads to part B of the rationale given here. Submitting and suffering follows Christ's example, verses 21 through 23. 21 says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. In his life, Jesus Christ was perfectly righteous. In his trial and in his death and in his passion, he suffered unjustly. And as his disciples, we are called to the same path of suffering. I confess, I want to ignore this call. I think we probably all do, if we're honest. But it is an unavoidable teaching of the New Testament. We don't have time to explore this today, but, but part of what will help us in this is remembering that just as God used Christ's suffering for good, he uses our suffering for good as well. Not, certainly not on the same uh, level and dimension, but he uses it for good, for our good, for the good of others, and for his glory. Well, besides the same path of suffering, we are also called to the same pattern of suffering. In other words, how we deal with suffering, we need to look to Christ as our example, as Peter says here. And the word that he uses here was a word that was used to refer to a tablet on which were written or carved letters of the alphabet. And they would use it for teaching children how to write. They would, they would trace their letters over it. And then mixing metaphors, Peter says also that Christ is our example so we can follow in his steps. So, what is this carved trap tablet that we're to trace? What are these steps in which we're to walk? Peter describes Christ here, and he does so quoting heavily from Isaiah 53. 
first of all, two things that Jesus did not do, looking at verse 22. He didn't sin, he didn't lie. In other words, Jesus had good conduct to begin with, and really his conduct throughout his life was perfect. Obviously, this was necessary for him to be the acceptable atoning sacrifice for sin, but in it, in his goodness of life, he also provides an example. If you and I suffer, let it not be because we deserve it. Instead, if you and I suffer, let it be despite our godly behavior, even because of our godly behavior, and despite the fact that we don't deserve it. Two more things that Jesus didn't do are found in verse 23. First, he says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And I think we can all admit that when someone insults us, it is nearly instinctual, nearly a knee-jerk reaction to want to insult that person back, to trade hurt for hurt. But that's not what Jesus does. Second thing he didn't do, when he suffered, he did not threaten. He did not stand up for himself, though he could have done so. At his arrest, remember, Jesus rebuked Peter for drawing the sword, and he's like, Peter, dude, I could, I could call legions of angels down here if I wanted to to help me. But he didn't do that. Again, when we suffer at the hands of someone else, our natural tendency is to desire, threaten, and exact revenge. Instead of that, we have Jesus' example. Rather than reviling and threatening, what Jesus did do was he entrusted his, himself and his situation to God. The end of 23 says this, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Brothers and sisters, when you and I are mistreated, it is God's job to judge, not ours. Part of being mindful of God, as he says in verse 19, part of that mindfulness is remembering God's ultimate and perfect justice, which we can trust completely and explicitly. Similar ideas found in Romans 12, 19, where Paul writes, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. The next part of Peter's rationale here is number letter C. Christ suffered for us so we could live differently. Verse 24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Peter quotes Isaiah and uses the example of Christ to illustrate his point about submission, and that's where really I'm going to focus this morning. However, in doing this, Peter also celebrates Christ's work on the cross, and he rehearses the gospel message for his readers. Verse 24, we are sinners under sin's mastery. Verse 22, Jesus committed no sin even while he was being crucified. Verse 24, Jesus bore our sin on himself, breaking its hold on us and bringing us into righteousness. Verse 24, by his death we are healed. Verse 25, though we were once lost sheep, we, have now, we are now at home with our shepherd. This is the good news. And like Peter's original readers, we Christians need reminders of it. Now, that's true for many, many reasons. But one reason, I think, given the context here, 
is that we need to be reminded of the good news of the gospel in order to help us put whatever unjust, whatever unjust suffering we may endure into proper perspective. Peter's saying, I know it's rough, but our suffering pales in comparison to what we have received as a result of our Savior's suffering. Jesus is worth it. Okay, I know this is, we're not this kind of church, but can I get something there? Jesus is worth it. Thank you. Remember that, Christians. There may be some here, though, who have not yet believed this good news, and I point you again, perhaps after the service, look at verses 22 to 25. You are a rebel and sinner. You are under God's holy judgment, and you cannot rescue yourself. However, Jesus made your rescue possible, and God is calling you to turn from your sin and your self-reliance and to put your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And my urgent plea is, will you do it today? Will you heed his call? Well, after that brief but necessary gospel digression, we return to the point that Christ suffered so we could live differently. The middle of verse 23 says, quote, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And specifically in the context of this passage, disobeying and disrespecting masters, trading insults with others, and seeking revenge, these things are all part of the old way of life. They are sins to which we're to die. Instead, as Peter makes clear throughout his letter, we're to live righteously. And specifically, in this case, that means following Jesus' example of obedience, submission, righteous suffering, and trust in the Father. Subpoint D in our rationale. Ultimately, we're responsible to Christ as our master. Then verse 25 says that because of our salvation, we have returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Now, this is an interesting image and description of the Lord Jesus. Christ as shepherd, I get. That's a common biblical theme. But I'm struck here by the reference to Christ as overseer. It's the only place in the Bible where it refers to Jesus in this way. Now, this, this idea of overseer, the word used here, it has the idea of care and protection and watching out for some, someone or something but also involved is the idea of authority. And I think it's no, uh, no coincidence that Peter uses that word here when he's talking about masters. We are responsible to Jesus for our attitudes and our actions at work, in suffering, and in suffering at work. This idea is re reinforced back in verse 16 where it says we're to live as God's servants. And in verse 17, in the call to fear God. And in verse 19, of our mindfulness of God. And this same idea is clear in Paul's household code in the book of Ephesians. He says to obey earthly masters as you would Christ, as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God, rendering service as to the Lord. Remember, I began this morning talking about how God ordained work in the garden. God was Adam and Eve's boss. And that is still the case, even though work has been messed up by sin. Christ is our ultimate master. Well, having looked at the command and the rationale, we're now ready to look at the application. Now, in the course of the, the exposition, I've just 
by nature touched on some application already. I'm sure you could, you could figure it out. But let's focus on this more intensely as we close. First of all, we just have to admit and acknowledge that though Jesus Christ is set forth as our example here, Jesus was not a slave suffering mistreatment at the hand of his master or his employer. Um, so given that Jesus wasn't exactly in that situation that Peter's addressing, but yet, Jesus, but yet Jesus is held up as our example, I think it is then reasonable to extend the lessons about how we respond to unjust suffering beyond the workplace to any situation where we may experience it. Because some of, us, some of us may not be mistreated at work. And that's why I said in the main point, in the workplace and beyond. Let me take the application a bit further. I do not at all want to minimize Jesus' example, his suffering. I do not at all want to minimize cases where there is serious injustice and suffering at work or otherwise, but, but my guess is that maybe some of us, many of us are sitting here thinking, yeah, it really, doesn't really apply to me. Um, I, I, I think we can, this, this idea of Christ as our model and motivation extends to when we experience minor mistreatment at the hands of others. And I think that's the practice. If, if, for example, if we take revenge in small things, are we really going to respond like Jesus did in the big thing? Now, regarding the workplace, again, caveats here all over the place. We are not slaves, so there is not a direct one-to-one correspondence here. But I think there are enough similarities to present-day employment that we can make the analogy. Master-slave relationships within the Greco-Roman Empire existed within an economic system and a social system of authority. Therefore, it's appropriate to take the principles here and apply them to our situation. Namely, many of us experience an employer-employee relationship. And this also entails a system and structure of economics and authority. By entering into that relationship, employees acknowledge the authority of our employers over us, and we take on certain responsibilities and obligations. To us, if Peter were standing here, he might say the following, as Christian employees, submit to your bosses, treat them respectfully, do what they tell you to do, do a good job, don't be a slacker. Give an honest day's work for an honest day's wage. And not just if your boss is good, but also if they're mean or they're unfair or they're incompetent. Even if they treat you unfairly because you're a Christian or hold to Christian morals. I think we can also apply and extend what we said about mistreatment by bosses to poor treatment by coworkers who aren't our supervisors for all the same I think, obvious reasons of the kind of people that God wants us to be. And then some of you, I need to extend the analogy a little bit further, perhaps some of you are students. That's your job. (laughs) Students, submit to your teachers, Peter might say. And in all this, remember the motivation. You know, non-Christians can submit, but worldly submission is fueled by, I think, money or ambition or outright fear. Instead, Our motivation as followers of Jesus Christ is the Lord himself as our audience, our example, our source of new life, and our ultimate master. Now, 
a question this raises. Does submission mean that we are complete doormats at work? Do we ever assert our rights? For example, in the case of sexual harassment, should we just sit there and take it? And my answer to that question in particular would be no. Our context is different. Unlike the first century, we have HR departments and we have labor laws. Today's employer-employee relationship is a social structure of our culture and it entails policies and procedures which are put in place to protect employees as well as means of recourse when things go awry. And I think it's okay to take advantage of this. But, having said this, given this passage, in some cases the right thing to do the thing that the Lord might be calling us to do might be to choose not to assert our rights. The right thing to do might be to endure patiently under mistreatment. Because remember, as this passage has taught us, this finds favor with God. It follows Christ's example. It bears witness to the gospel, glorifies God. It shows our trust in God's justice. Now, if, if, if we find ourselves in this situation where something like this is happening, we don't know what to do, should I? We need wisdom in such situations, but thankfully we've got a shepherd and overseer of our souls who has promised to give wisdom if we but ask. And if wisdom does mean that we do in fact take take the steps of recourse that are available to us, we still need to watch our attitudes and our actions. In doing so, in going to HR, are we hateful, spiteful, vengeful? Or, as we seek justice for our situation, are we showing Christ-like love? In any circumstance of unjust suffering, again, workplace, not, major, minor, we need to measure ourselves against Christ's example of what he did do and what he didn't do, which I enumerated before. Well, in my introduction, I talked about cruel and incompetent bosses. I talked about toxic work environments. I also mentioned Sarah, the Tajik Christian, who suffered mistreatment and threats specifically because of her faith in Christ. I don't want to address that for a minute. The reasons here are different than they are or will be in Muslim countries. But because of American societal trends, it seems clear to me at least that mistreatment at work because we are Christians is coming. Some of you may already have felt that heat. You may be feeling that heat right now. For all of us, we need to be prepared for how we're going to respond. And here is God's teaching. In the workplace and beyond, follow Christ as our model and motivation in submission and suffering. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the gift of work, and we thank you as well for the gift of authority, you being the ultimate. Both of these things have been twisted by sin, but they are still good things. As we think about our, our work, wherever it may be, help us, Lord, to see you as our ultimate supervisor, our ultimate master. Help us to honor you in our work. Help us to submit to those in authority over us, even if it's a hard thing to do. 
I do lift up any who are suffering in this type of situation. Grant them grace and wisdom and love. Help us all to remember our motivation is you. And Lord, help us to glorify you in all things, including our work. In Jesus' name, amen.